uh, I wanted to pause Ephesians for a time to think about maybe a bit of what our world is going through, what we are going through, what this is going to expose in us. So two books have come to mind, uh, Philippians and Ecclesiastes. And Philippians uh, is a book about joy. And Ecclesiastes is a book about the vanity of life, or the meaninglessness of life without Christ. And we're going to, from tomorrow onwards, I'm going to just write up a devotion on Ecclesiastes day after day. Uh, and then on Sundays, I'll just unpack a section of Ecclesiastes for the foreseeable future. And then maybe when we start gathering again, however long, uh, far away that is, we will hopefully finish off Ecclesiastes and then go back in to Ephesians, uh, focusing around that uh, that book. Right now, I thought Philippians, the end of Philippians, Philippians 4, 4 to 7, would be a really good passage for us to ponder, uh, a passage for us to think through and wrestle with uh, in how we are going to respond in the midst of this hard time, how we're going to respond in the midst of suffering, how we're going to respond in the midst of the unknown. I think that's one of the hardest parts. How long is this for? How long until we will be able to hang out again? Uh, those sorts of questions. So Philippians is a is a book, like I said, about joy. And, and let me just read you this passage and then we're going to unpack that. Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Let me pray. Uh, I'll give you time to pray for me, pray for yourselves, pray that the Holy Spirit would move in us and through us in our different places that we are at the moment. Let's pray. Father, I, I come to you in sorrow and grief that my brothers and sisters aren't present with me here this morning. Uh, Lord, I feel the weight of that. And Lord, want to still be faithful in expanding your word or teaching your word, Lord, but at the same time have a feeling of emptiness a feeling of despair, a feeling of of laziness in the midst of me. And Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would work through those weakness, weaknesses uh, and that your power would be made perfect. I feel for my brothers and sisters, those who through being vulnerable have had to be, had, have had to be isolated for uh, uh, a long time now. For even a month for some, a few weeks for others. And now for all of us, as we don't even know what tonight may bring or tomorrow uh, and the conditions that we are called to 
isolate and not socialize. God, I pray for strength. I pray for knowledge of who you are. I pray for a deep, deep understanding of your mighty power. And I pray, Lord, that by your grace, we would rejoice in the knowing of who you are always, even in the midst of the hardest times. And, Lord, we would not be foolish to think that this this is the hardest time. Maybe there are harder times to come. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us, sustain us by the Spirit and fill us with your word now that we may be moved by it and led towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I never thought I would be streaming live. Uh, I've always disliked the idea of a live stream church or a campus church, but now we are a campus church, a campus church all around Newcastle, and we're streaming live to uh, hear the Word of God. Uh, I've said it before, it's not ideal, it's not the plan, it's not God's design for the church, but... We need to believe, and I pray that it will shape our church. It will shape, shape the kingdom. Uh, it will refine us, and I pray that daily we will see our need for the Spirit and our brothers and sisters in our lives, that it will take away any apathy towards church that has been there before, and that we will come back with a deeper desire, with louder voices and more boldness to preach the gospel, and that this would really equip the church. I continue to pray the same prayer I've been praying since November last year for deep assurance of your salvation and mine and that we, although separated, would know what it means to be one as the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are one. This time is not an easy time. It's uncertain and I think that makes it the hardest. Not knowing what each day will bring, not knowing what we are and aren't allowed to do, uh, wanting to serve the worst, wanting to be faithful to the government while also wanting to be uh, faithful to the kingdom of God in advancing, in proclaiming, in building up his church. This is hard and it's scary. We don't know what is to come. But we have a choice. We have a choice to make in this time right now. We have a choice to make this Sunday being the first Sunday that we are separated. We can either make a plan, a plan that says we're going to pursue God above all else in the midst of this, a plan that sets aside diligent and deliberate time to study the attributes of God, to work out our faith with fear and trembling, or we can be foolish and go into this without a plan and end up in despair, potentially spiritual depression, potentially watching a lot, a lot of Netflix. I encourage us as a church, as one body, although separate, let's plan, let's be wise, as the Proverbs tell us that a wise man plans his ways. We'll see when we get into the book of Ecclesiastes that the scriptures tell us to be people who learn first and then live, not live and then learn. We live in a society that says you learn by your mistakes. But we have a book in the Bible where people have made enough mistakes for us so that we don't need to continue to make the same mistakes as them. So let the wise person plan their ways and the Lord will determine their steps. So let's plan. Let's make a plan. 
Let's be making a choice today as a church and keep each other accountable day in and day out that we are daily drawing near to the Lord as we see in this passage will be the only way that we can endure this with joy. So let's kick off. Philippians 4.4, Paul starts by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. When we hear someone say rejoice always, we want to start asking a few questions about their life. We, we probably want to know who is this person? Because if they're saying to rejoice, maybe they've had a really easy life. Maybe they haven't actually suffered as much as you or me. We want to ask the question, who, where did they come from? What upbringing did they have? What sort of home did they live in? Well, the beauty is we know about this writer. And we know that Paul is writing, as we read this letter, the Philippian letter, he's writing from prison. He's writing from a prison, not like our prisons, not where you get meals delivered to you, not where you have a, a bed and a toilet in your cell, not like our prisons, but a prison that is wet and damp with no bed. And the only way you would gain food is if a brother or a sister in Christ would bring you food, which would then make them guilty of being a Christian. So this prison is a horrible place to be. And, and not only is Paul in prison, but we have a, an account of all that Paul has been through in 2 Corinthians 11. He reminds us in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 23, I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with, a greater, with greater labors far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I've been beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in turmoil, hardship, through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow. I think when we read this, we can vouch for this guy that he has not had an easy life, right? We're not saying this guy is uh, this guy's out of his mind. He's comfortable. Of course, he tells us to rejoice. No, when he says rejoice, he's saying rejoice even when it is miserable, even when you're going through floggings, even when you are shipwrecked, even when coronavirus takes over the world, even when you're isolated. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. He says it over and over again. But we have to be aware that, that if he is saying rejoice in these situations, rejoice in being flogged, rejoice in being in prison, he is a madman. Because that is absolutely crazy. No one is going to say, yay, I'm happy to be in prison or this is exciting that I'm getting flogged. No one believes that. That is a, a, an attitude of someone who is crazy. But we've got to remember the very next words that he says of the object of what we rejoice in. Rejoice in the Lord 
always. And he repeats it, which is a Hebrew technique to remind us that it's a, it's accentuated. And I will say again, rejoice. So in the midst of prison, in the midst of flogging, in the midst of these situations, he's not being uh, rejoicing that he's in prison. He's not rejoicing that he's being flogged or he's shipwrecked or he's homeless or in danger. He's rejoicing in the Lord whom he knows. And this is the important part for us to study as we come into this season of suffering on a global scale. Paul's object of rejoicing is not his situation. It is not the flogging, not the jail. It is the Lord whom he knows. And the reason he can do that is because he knows that the Lord is the one who is in control over all things. The good seasons and the bad. The times when he says that I have been in plenty and in want. And the Lord that he knows, the Lord he rejoices rejoices in, is in control of both. And we see in Philippians that Paul has developed a mindset that is not double-minded but single-minded. And this is the secret for how we may endure and rejoice in the midst of suffering, not in the suffering itself, but in the Lord, because we will have a single mindset. If our mind was a double mindset, we would be always thinking about, woe is me and the Lord, or how can the Lord do this to me? But a single mindset focuses not on the suffering itself, but on the one who is in control of it, the one who cares and loves Let me point this out to you in Philippians 1, 20. Two things, two things that I think uh, Paul uh, identifies as the way he endures suffering, the way he rejoices in the Lord in suffering, is the first in Philippians 1, 20. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life, or by death. And in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of my surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is the single-mindedness of Paul. The secret to rejoicing in the Lord always is the fact that he is so focused on magnifying Christ, making Christ known, and knowing Christ himself. To the point where he says, Everything is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is everything. Everything. Family, children, rubbish compared to, I'm not saying they're completely rubbish, compared to, if we were to compare them to Christ and knowing Christ, you would choose Christ every time. He's far more sufficient than family. Although those things are good blessings. So we see Paul's single-mindedness is not this swinging back and forth between, oh, my life is so bad. He doesn't say things like, oh, it's just my luck or seems about right. This always happens to me. I'm so guilty of those statements. So guilty that how often those words come out of my mouth, oh, that's just my luck. Oh, this always happens to me. That is a double-mindedness. And Paul has a single-minded attitude rather than being like, oh, this always happens to me. I, I always get whipped by the Jews. I'm always in danger. He says, no, whether by life 
or death, my aim is that Christ will be magnified no matter what. My aim is that Christ will be magnified and that I will continue to grow in the knowledge of Christ. If Paul says that he wants to grow in the knowledge of Christ, I want to know Christ, we need to know Christ. Paul, if we were to put someone on a scale of knowing Christ, he was probably pretty high on that scale and we would be much lower. And if Paul is saying, I want to know Christ, how much more do we need to know Christ? So the secret to rejoicing in the Lord always, always, that is in life and death, that is in imprisonment, that is in isolation, that is in the times where we cannot get out of our home or even get sick or even in the loss of a loved one, always, rejoicing in the Lord always, is to have our mind firmly fixed on magnifying Jesus and knowing him. Magnifying Jesus and knowing him. So Paul knew Jesus. He knew all about Jesus. He made it his life aim to know more of Jesus. And he is the one who writes Romans 8.28. And I'm sure in the midst of his suffering, he loved this passage. We know it. We love it. We put it on the cut on Christian cups and T-shirts, but it is far more important than T-shirts or cups. It is a passage that we should sit and meditate on always. Romans 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul is the one who wrote this. So that in the midst of going through a flogging or a shipwreck, in the midst of being poisoned, in the midst of a a journey that is danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger by false brothers, danger, uh, danger in the sleepless nights. As he goes through these lists, he knows that God is working all things out for his good. Yes, Flogging was for the good of Paul and the good of the church and for the glorification of God. Imprisonment. We see that so clearly in Paul's letter to the Philippians that at the beginning he says, it has served the advancement of the kingdom that I'm in prison because now the whole imperial guard knows that I'm here for Christ. So he knows that all things, yes, even the death of a child, even the loss of a spouse, even the loss of a friend, even in the midst of a whole church globally scattered and not gathering, all things, everything will work for the good of those who love him. And he sees this throughout the promises in Scripture. We could go from Genesis all the way through to the end of the Old Testament and then through to the New Testament and see countless stories of God's hand in bringing good out of miserable situations. I think the prophet or the book of Daniel is one that is a great example. Israel has been exiled into Babylon and Daniel is a guy of great wisdom and might. He's a young man, probably 17 or 18, maybe younger, and he has been pulled into the royal courts as a guy who they're going to train up in their pagan ways. And Daniel is a faithful man of God and wants to live a way live in a way that is both faithful to the government, his king in Babylon, who was a pagan king, 
and also faithful to God, his, his, uh, his Lord. And he makes wise decisions by being faithful in the midst of this and they give him a pagan name and he accepts that pagan name. But when they say, you're going to eat this food, he says, no. And when they say, you're no longer allowed to pray to your God, he says, no, I would rather go to the lions, throw me in the lion den. Den. And what comes of that? Of course, the lion's mouths were shut while he was in the den because he was faithful to God and what looked like a terrible situation becomes a place where Daniel has the voice to prophesy about the end times and to prophesy about the coming of Christ. And he speaks to not just not just Israel, but the whole of the pagan world about how there's going to be kingdoms that come and then one great kingdom, the kingdom of God, which will crush them all. A time, a period in Israel's history, which seems so grim, so uh, unfruitful, God used for good. And brought about a people, a remnant for himself that were more faithful, at least for a time. If that's not enough to look at a suffering and experience of knowing God, we've got the greatest image, not just image, we've got the greatest saviour in that God's plan for saving his church was through the suffering of his own son. Think for a moment that, that, that God, before the foundation of the world, planned and purposed that Christ would suffer at the hands of the Romans and Jews. It was no accident. The Romans and the Jews didn't derail God's plan and put Jesus on the cross. No, it was planned and purposed. We see that in the book of John, countless times saying, it is not my time yet, and Jesus would flee or disappear through the crowd. We know that it was a plan and a purpose to happen at that exact time, in that exact way, that he would be whipped, mocked, spat on, nailed to a tree and left to die. God's plan was to make his son suffer so that we could have salvation. All things happen for the good of those who love him. Even the death of Christ was purposed for good. It was a horrific situation. A, a, a horrible way to die it was crucifixion. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. And his son was subject to that before the world was created. Planned and purposed for Christ to suffer, to redeem his church. All things work together for good, together for good. Even the incarnated Jesus, the God-man suffering and dying away from God. So in our isolation, in our isolation, in our time isolated from this world by this virus, are we going to be a church that rejoices in the Lord? We can see that this virus is bringing us and the world to its knees. And that is a good thing. We are so full of ourselves, so invincible, so sure that we will endure, but maybe we won't. Just maybe we won't endure this time. The church will prevail, don't get me wrong. God will bring something good out of it, but what if we don't? Will we still rejoice in the Lord? What if some of us don't prevail? There is good happening. 
There is good happening in our midst. We don't know what it is yet. We haven't seen it fulfilled yet. But when we look back in six months, 12 months, 18 months time, we'll say, God refined us and it was good for me. I look back at the suffering in my life when grace has gone through sickness and I say that it was good and I would not have it any other way. I don't rejoice in that time. I don't think that time was amazing, but I rejoice in the Lord that carried me through it and ordained it. Our suffering is all for our good. And Paul knew this and calls us to rejoice in the one we know is in control. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. But he does give us some warnings and prepares us. Because he says, do not be anxious about anything. It's not a helpful statement. When someone's anxious, have you ever gone up to him and said, stop being anxious? It doesn't go too well for you. It's not a great, helpful uh, piece of advice for Paul to just say, hey, don't be anxious about anything, anything at all. Don't be anxious. But we know, we know, we know Paul feels our pain. Because at the end of that list of burdens, the last one he says is the anxiety for all the churches. So he has anxiety. He feels anxiety. And what we might be unaware of that in in our day and age, we might say that sorrow and mourning is the opposite of joy. But in the scriptures, anxiety is the opposite of joy. Our anxiety robs us of the joy in the Lord. Because what anxiety does is it comes from a place of fear a fear of losing or maybe a fear of being out of control or a fear of not knowing. I want to ask you the question, what are you anxious about right now? What are you anxious about right now? Notice I didn't say, are you anxious? Because I believe that we all are. In the human capacity, by nature, we are people who worry because we're self-centred, self-protecting humans, yet we have limited control. And self-centred, self-protecting people or self-centred, self-protecting creatures without control will worry when they're out of control and there's fear of not knowing there's to come. But Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, nothing at all, nothing. To be anxious about no thing, not death, not sickness, not catching sickness. We see so clearly that he's saying there is nothing that you should be anxious about. This, This is a hard one to grasp. How, how do we not be anxious about anything? How, how can we actually live like that? The Christian commandment to rejoice always in the Lord and not be anxious about anything, that is, that is a mark of a Christian. That is what we see throughout the whole of the word. And if that is a mark of Christians, I know that I do this poorly because I'm constantly anxious and I'm constantly anxious about the Lord's work, which is in many ways worse. The point is not that we have anxiety, But where does it lead us? Does your anxiety linger long in your mind to the point of being in uncontrollable despair? Or does it lead you to the one who ordains all things? 
Does your anxiety lead you to the one who knows all things, has control of all things, who brings good for those who love him out of all things? Think of Job in the midst of his suffering. In chapter 19, we've seen immense suffering happen in the first few chapters, and now he's stuck with his, his friends who are just plaguing him with poor theology about suffering. In Job 19, after a long period of suffering, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the, on the earth. For I know that my Redeemer lives. His suffering led him to a certainty of his position and, 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 and he turns to the one who knows about or knows where his suffering came from. He, he points to the one who is alive, the one who is in control, the one who knows. Paul, uh, Job, could have gone to a place of despair. And, and let's be honest, he was pretty much there. But in the midst of this place, in the midst of these anxieties and worries, in the midst of this, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand on this earth. It leads him to the Lord. Where do your anxieties lead you? Do your anxieties make you more busy in doing, more busy in working? Do your anxieties make you fall flat on your face in your bed? Complaining and moaning? Or do they lead you to the one who has the power? Do they lead you to the one who knows? Do they lead you to the one who comforts? For I know my Redeemer lives. Is that where your anxieties take you? Because Paul clearly had anxieties, right? And he leads us to another place. Instead of saying it like Job said it in Job 19, he says, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's saying the same thing as Job. For I know my Redeemer lives. Let it lead you to the one who lives. Let it lead you to the one who redeems. Let it lead you, lead you to the one who is powerful, the one who is in control, the one who comforts. Paul had anxieties for the churches. So when he says, do not be anxious about anything, of course we're going to have anxieties. It's in our human nature to worry about things that we can't control. But where is it taking us is the important thing. Is it taking us away from the Lord or to the Lord? Man, I need to hear this every day. I need this. I need to be reminded that I, uh, that I should not fear. I need to be reminded to take everything to the Lord in prayer. I need to be reminded to draw near to the one who comforts. Our fear turns into sin and our anxieties turn into sin when we fear man or the situations of men more than we fear God. Anxiety in its beginning self is really not a sin. It's part of our fallen nature. But when our fears and anxieties about men or earthly things lead us from God and away from God and cause us to fear them more than fearing God, that is sin. And the evidence of this is that we don't pray. Instead, we work harder or we despair and complain. This is sin. 
in us, and I am guilty of this. And we shouldn't excuse it among the church. We should actually hold one another accountable. Are you fearing man? Are you fearing worldly troubles? We know God. We have a book written by him about him for us to know him and study him. And you can do that all the days of your life and you will never come to an end of studying him. Hosea 7, 14 reminds us about the people who don't call out to God. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. Is that what we do in our anxieties? Do our anxieties just take us to a place of whinging and moaning and complaining about woe is me? How hard do I have it? Rather than coming to the one who is the source of all life, Do we cry to him from the heart? Our rejoicing in the Lord always keeps us coming to him. Our rejoicing in the Lord always keeps us from despairing. We cry to him when when worry comes upon us. We cry to him and we look to him always. Bringing him our hurts, bringing him our troubles, bringing him our concerns. And as we study him more and know him more, we will find that it brings us to a place of comfort. We're reminded as we come to a place of prayer, as we come to seek him, we're reminded that our suffering will produce an eternal weight of glory, better than anything you can imagine, better than your best moments in this life, far better. Before we move on, he says, come to him in prayer that consists of supplication with thanksgiving. Supplication is really a longing or a desire for something. But it says it comes with thanksgiving. Our culture could do with a lot more thanksgiving. What would it look like in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our anxieties to come to the Lord with supplication, with thanksgiving? Our prayers being, God, I I desire to see the church back together again. I desire to see the church grow through this. I desire to see uh, my loved one well. And Lord, I just... I just thank you so much that you've given me this life so far. Thank you so much that you've given me health up to this point. But I thank you so much that you've given me friends up to this point or family up to this point. I know that I'm not worthy of any of these things. Just take a moment and look around you, whether you're in your home or outside. Look at your children. Look at the place that you live in. All that is from God. Job, in his suffering, says, should we expect good from the Lord and not evil? Blessed be the Lord. He gives and takes away. Supplication with thanksgiving. Present your desires before God, but be mindful that you have so much already to be thankful of or thankful for. 
take a moment every day in the midst of your isolation and thank God for the things that you do have. Can I encourage us that in the midst of this, let it lead us away from our beds in moaning and wallowing. Woe is me. And rather to a place of greater thanksgiving. Of course, asking for things and believing that God can heal and believing that God will restore and believing that God could bring this to an end tomorrow. Let us be thankful. Thankful for all that he has given us. He finishes and says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How well do we know this first church? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So many people quote this verse. And I just imagine and have been in the situation and probably have done it myself where someone comes to you and they're hurting and the first thing you rattle off is this verse and you say, oh, the peace of God surpasses all understanding. And they haven't even told you what their concern, their worry or their suffering is yet. Let us not use this verse out of context. This verse does not go on its own, but it goes with all those preceding verses that we just read. Otherwise, we leave a person walking away from us with now two anxieties. The one they came to us with, the one they came to us at first with, and the other one as to why they're not feeling the peace of God. Let us be a bit more practical in our advice and in our thinking. This is an incredible verse that reminds us that, yes, God has a peace that surpasses all understanding, but what? how do we obtain that? It guards our hearts and our minds, it says. But how do we grasp it? Well, it's in these three words at the end, in Christ Jesus, which leads us back to the beginning, rejoice in the Lord always. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which guards our hearts and minds, is found in Christ Jesus. And to know Christ Jesus leads us back to rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, he reminds us. The end leads us to rejoicing in knowing Christ again to know the one who is over all, to know him, to commune with him, to understand him, recall his promises, to recall the cross, the sovereign plan of the cross. To know that the Lord is at hand, as Paul said in the beginning, rejoice in the Lord, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's near to you. His spirit dwells within you. And it is both your heart and your mind that need to be aligned or layered with these truths of God. And often we're out of sync with one another. 
We've got our mind, which is the intellectual thinking, and it's where we receive things first. But then we've got the heart, and when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's what we feel, know, believe. It's like the all-encompassing emotion of our body, which sometimes isn't at the same pace as our mind. We can know things in our mind. We can meditate on the truth of God. We can meditate on the word of God and it feel like our heart just is not receiving. We can pray and have supplication with thanksgiving and have these disciplines, but for some reason our mind gets it, but our heart doesn't. How long do we keep doing it for? As long as it takes. As long as it takes until your heart gets it and until you feel it and know it in all the fibres of your being. The mind may receive things and may know things and when we speak of preaching the gospel to yourself daily, moment after moment, that means that we're speaking it to the core of our heart. It's what our mind knows that we want our heart to grasp and we are preaching and preaching until we actually are moved in the core of who we are by these truths. So let's make a plan. Let's make a plan to make sure that by the end of this experience, whatever we go through in the next little while, whether it's greater loss than we've already had, let us rejoice in the Lord always by knowing him and positioning ourselves in a place where we can remember and preach the truth of God to our heart until we grasp it as long as it takes. Let's not give up for giving up is evidence that you never had the spirit in the first place. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling and endurance will be the evidence that we are founded in him. The Christian's ultimate end is a single-mindedness that Christ will be magnified whether in life or in death. That means for you and those you love. Will Christ be magnified not just in your death, but in the death of your friends or family? Will Christ be magnified? Will you make that your mind's aim? Will you preach Christ to yourself till your heart receives it? So that we may rejoice in this uncertain time. And as those ugly anxieties raise their head, will we be led to the one who knows all things? Let me pray. Father God, we know we are complex. We would be foolish to think that we are simple. Our mind grasps things our heart does not believe or our body does not grasp. The inner self of us has been moved by. Let us not be quickly dismissive or quickly lazy or quickly undisciplined, but Lord, let us be 
moved by your spirit to be disciplined in causing our heart to be moved by your word. Let us not be merely intellectual mind thinking people, but rather wanting to see that heart, that stubborn heart of ours moved by you. Rejoice, you say. Rejoice in you. We can rejoice in you, Lord, for you are infinite. There is enough of you to satisfy us for this life and the next 10,000 times 10,000 lives, Lord, an infinite amount of time. God, I feel the weight of this time. And I know, Lord, that there will be even the moment after we're finished, a feeling of just wanting to hide away and wallow on the bed. But, Lord, let that not be us. Let us plan to study you and inquire of you and to come to you with supplication, with thanksgiving, knowing that you live, our Redeemer lives, and he will stand. You will stand upon this earth. You will rule and reign forever. Lord, bind your church together. Bring us assurance of our salvation. Make us one, Lord, I pray, for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.